Matthew, chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard that it is said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. May God bless the reading of his word. There are two very familiar passages in the Bible that I find that even non-Christians know and often quote. And I'd like to ask you if you know what those two passages are in the Bible. Anybody know what they are? What's the first one? Yeah, judge not, lest ye be judged. Okay, that's the one that's often quoted more than any other Bible verse. Often quoted out of context um, to mean that as Christians, we should have no standard of right and wrong. So who are we to judge the actions of another person? Someone else. What's the second passage that is often quoted? Anybody know? No. That's not the one that non-Christians are going to quote. Only Christians know that one. Someone else? Take a stab. What? The golden rule. Yeah, there's probably three because I think you're right on that one. That wasn't what I had in my brain this morning when I was preparing my introduction. Okay. The golden rule is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you're in marriage, you will find that doesn't work. Um, For example... When Evie and I were married in 1985, um, we had to have a discussion before Christmas about what she wanted and what I wanted. Because if I gave her the gifts that I wanted somebody to give to me, then she wasn't going to be happy. So I let her know that I wanted the complete works of Jonathan Edwards, the Banner of Truth edition, and she needed to operate by the platinum rule, not the golden rule. The platinum rule is do unto others as they want to be done unto. Okay, it's a little bit different from the golden rule. It'll save your marriage. Okay, um, but that's not the passage I'm looking for. There's another passage that even unbelievers know is very important, and they often quote. It's actually the section of a verse. No, actually, a lot of people don't know that one, even though Tim Tebow had it on his head. Um, one time, it, you probably don't even know who Tim Tebow is, so let me move on. Um, someone else, uh, not John 3.16. Christians know that one. Every Christian knows that one. I even know it in Chinese, but I'm not going to say it or I'll get in trouble because this is the English worship. Okay, someone else. What? No, no, that's not it. Okay, someone else. You've got to nail this, people, or I'm not going to be able to get past my introduction. And I've got a lot to say this morning. Yes, somebody knows? Yes, thank you. Turn the other cheek. Now, we need to be very, very careful. Of all the passages that are ever quoted from the Bible, this is the one that has been used, and I would say misused, by non-Christians and Christians alike to get people into all kinds of bad situations and to leave them there rather than doing what the scripture commands us to do. 
Now, I'd like to take a look at this passage today in its context. We're looking at Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. And some of you are not looking at your Bibles. You're looking at me. Trust me, look at your Bibles. It's much better than looking at me today. I'm having a bad hair day and a bad eye day, okay? Put it together and grab the pew Bible in front of you. Get out your cell phone. Go online and find Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. This passage comes in the context of Jesus comparing the Old Testament law and the way it was being interpreted with his interpretation of how broad the law of God was and how applicable it was to even situations that went beyond the way that the Pharisees were thinking about it. So throughout this passage, we see six times Jesus saying, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you, you have heard that it was said. But I say unto you, and we have that in verse 38, what did they hear was said? You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, what on earth is he talking about? He's talking about the appropriate punishment to fit the crime. Now, do you know where he got that from? Anybody know? Anybody know how to use your Bible um, to define the answer to crazy questions like that? You'll see the footnote in there. If, if you're reading on an online Bible, you click the footnote, it'll tell you that the two passages that are being referred to come from the Old Testament. The first one is Exodus 21, verse 22. So let's turn to that. Exodus chapter 21, verse 22. And let's see this passage that Jesus is quoting in context to try and figure out what it means. God gave Moses and the Israelites laws by which they were to rule themselves in what was considered a theocracy, a kingdom where God's at the top and he's the ruler and everybody needs to obey him. And this is what life was like in the Old Testament, um, in Old Testament Israel. So I'm going to read, I'm going to switch my glasses and then I'm going to read um, Exodus chapter 21, verse 22. If men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman, what on earth is a pregnant woman doing standing around two men who are fighting? Do you ever ask yourselves these questions? If men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury... Well, the kid's already dead. I think there is serious injury here. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Well, the way the Jews were interpreting this this passage was, is that in all situations, there's a mandatory punishment. If someone hurts you and hurts your eye, then you must gouge out their eye. If they knock out your tooth, then you must knock out their tooth. And so the Jewish people to whom Jesus was talking to had been exposed with teaching that said this is mandated. Let's look at the other passage where this appears. Leviticus chapter 24, Leviticus 24. It's a book full of all kinds of rules, a lot of rules that have to do with deciding 
whether the sore you have on your body is leprosy or not. And you were supposed to bring that to the priest. This is not a book you read at night before going to bed, um, because if you do, you might misunderstand it and have bad dreams. That Leviticus chapter 24 actually was a very important book in Israel because it had all the laws and the laws, even the law of leprosy, dealt with the holy standards of God as well as the protection of God's people. In his covenant community. And in the middle of this, we have Leviticus chapter 24, verses 15 through 23. Beginning in verse 15 of Leviticus chapter 24. Say to the Israelites, if anyone curses his God, he will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. The entire assembly must stone him, whether an alien or native born. When he blasphemes the name, he must be put to death. If anyone takes the life of a human being, he must be put to death. Anyone who takes the life of someone's animal must make restitution life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, whatever he has done must be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has injured the other, so he is to be injured. But once again, we have another law. But the question I want to ask you is, is to whom were both of these laws given? Were they given to individuals about what we have a right to do? So if you knock out my tooth, then I can go after you and then grab your tooth. Or were they given to the whole covenant community and to the court of Israel, which then represented the application of those laws? You see, what I want you to see is, is that the Old Testament law was not given to the individual, per se, about what he could do when somebody did something bad to him. It was given to the court of Israel about what was an appropriate punishment. And from it, we get a judicial principle that says that the punishment must fit the crime. You cannot have a punishment that's more severe. You cannot have a punishment that's not severe enough. This was the mindset in ancient Israel. It is the underpinnings of the entire American legal system. And it's why um, often in, in our own legal system, people want to make absolutely sure that someone is guilty before they apply a punishment. Uh, against them. And if they're going to err, they're going to err on the side of letting an offender go free um, rather than punishing someone who is not guilty. So why is this important when Jesus comes back to Matthew chapter five? The reason why it's important is because in this passage, like in the entire part of the Sermon on the Mount, he's speaking to individual Christians about how they live their life in the kingdom of God. He's speaking to people who he calls in the early part of the passage, those who are poor in spirit, those who are not proud. They're not haughty. They know that they're sinful. They know that they need God's mercy. And he's speaking to, to those people and he gives them this principle that seems like it's a contradiction of the Old Testament. In fact, it seems like it's a contradiction of common sense. Look at verse thirty nine. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil. What does that passage mean? Do not resist him who is evil. Can you turn my mic down a little bit? I'm getting a little bit of feedback. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other. What I want you to see is, is that Jesus gives a principle um, 
and he says, this is what the law really means. And then he goes on to give several applications. So the general principle here that he's saying is, is do not resist him who is evil. But then he goes on to give several um, illustrations. Illustration number one, whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other. Now, who of you in this room have ever who have ever done that? Someone slapped you on the right cheek and you said, oh, no, hit my other cheek as well. Um, One time I was walking down the street in Taiwan and I saw um, a a young adult uh, woman arguing with her boyfriend. And I I figured out what her boyfriend did that got him in so much trouble. But she was arguing with him and he was standing there like that. And she got upset and she was getting more agitated. And then she slapped him on the face. And he just stood there and she hit him. And then he recoiled like that. I thought she's going to hit him again and he's going to allow it. So I ran up to her and I gave her a tongue lashing like she'll never forget her entire life. And I said, if you touch him one more time, I'm calling the police. Well, he had he had gotten with someone else's um, girlfriend and and, uh, she had found out about it. And he had had a date with someone else and she was very upset about it. But the guy sat there and he took it one hit on one side and she got ready to hit him on the other side. But I wouldn't let her do it. Is this what Jesus is talking about here? Or what on earth is he talking about? That's illustration one. Um, Let me just talk about that one. You have to see this context, this this principle in the context of the entire Sermon on the Mount and in the context of what it means to be a Christian. Because what Jesus is doing with this illustration is, is he's saying, when someone sins against you, even when they strike you, don't sin back against them the same way that they sinned against you. And you see now how that relates to the Old Testament passage, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Jesus is saying, no, in God's kingdom, when someone sins against you, you don't retaliate back. And so what he's saying is, is that the essence of being a true Christian is that you don't retaliate back in kind to the person who sins against you. Unfortunately, this passage has been used um, by people to say that, like, for example, in school, you have to tolerate bullying. No, you don't have to tolerate tolerate bullying. You should go get your teacher. You should go get um, an authority figure. You should not put up with it. I've had many marital counseling situations. Actually, I had 14 Um, situations of spousal abuse when I was in Taiwan. Now, please don't get upset at me at what I'm about to say. I'm not I'm not making any um, conclusions from this other than to report the facts. I had I counseled 14 cases of spousal abuse and 12, 12 were the wife hitting the husband and only two were, were the husband hitting the wife. And in those situations, I had husbands look at me and say, I'm a Christian. Should I just sit there and take it when she hits me? Now, what do you say to that husband? What do I say to the wife? There were two wives who asked me the same question. And they said, as we read this passage, is that what God's obligating us to do is just stand there and take the abuse of someone else? No, brothers and sisters, he's saying don't retaliate. But there is nothing in the Bible that is saying that we should allow other people to sin against us. And let them get away with it. We should appeal to whatever the appropriate authority is. So I tell women who are being abused by their husbands, by all means, separate. Do not stay in a house where some man is hitting you. And don't misunderstand this passage. This passage is about what is in all of us, which is a sinful urge to retaliate against someone else. 
when they do something against you and to retaliate against them in kind or even worse. For example, I was driving um, last week. I was about to get on I-95 and I was going a little bit slow on the ramp and I wasn't going fast enough. Well, the person in back of me got really mad um, when I finally got out into the lane, they got out in the lane, they, they passed me, they were screaming, yelling, they rolled down their window, they were cussing, they gave me the finger and everything. And guess what I was thinking at that moment? Bless you, brother, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, no, that wasn't my first reaction. My first reaction was I had to fight the urge for my right hand to come up. I'm like, down, boy, you know, <clears throat> let's not do that today. And then I said... Lord, forgive me and then forgive that that person for their bad driving. I encountered this a lot in Massachusetts. Never seen anything like it in my whole entire life. Makes me at times want to go back and ride the MRT in Taiwan. But bear with me and pray for me. Um, Maybe come even drive for me. That would be even better. Then I won't be tempted. But the point is, is that there's something inside of us that rises up that wants to strike back. I remember hearing the story about the waiter, and maybe some of you have heard this. And by the way, if you hear me say sermon illustration and you've heard it before, everybody's hand go up and and then I'll realize, okay, they've heard that one and I'll go on to the next one. But how many of you have heard the sermon illustration about the waiter? Anybody heard it? If you've heard it, you can come up. Okay, nobody's heard, heard it. Good. I get to tell this one. There was a waiter who, and this happened in California at one of these healthy restaurants, you know, where they serve avocado and guacamole and all this good stuff that you find at Whole Foods instead of the bad stuff at McDonald's that I grew up with. But in in Hawaii, there was a waiter at an outdoor uh, restaurant in the L.A. area, and he served a fabulous salad to the person. And his customer kept, who was a man, kept on sending it back. He didn't like this. So the guy takes it back and adds a little bit more tomato, brings it back. And he's like, no, I, I don't like I don't like the carrots. Doesn't have enough carrots. So he sends it back. The guy puts the carrots back. You'd think he'd look at it one time and then tell the guy it needs this, that and the other. But he didn't do that. He sent his salad back four times. And each time there was another waiter in the vicinity was seeing the attitude of the waiter. He was so respectful as he gave the salad back each time. And so finally, when that customer left and the bill was settled, the one waiter comes up to the other waiter and says, hey, bro, like, how did you do that? Man, when a customer starts going like that, I get some attitude back and I tell him, hey, you should have told me the first time. Or he's like, I'm tempted to say something. But I just saw that you smiled and you gave it back to him every time. He's like, how'd you do that? He said, well, you didn't see what I was doing when I took the salad back. He said, every time I took it back, I spit in it. (laughs) So... You know, that is what's inside of us, brothers and sisters, isn't it? Another illustration. How many of you like Superman? Raise your hands if you like Superman. Anybody like Superman? Okay, we've got a Superman lover in the back. You don't like Superman? Who do you like? Spider-Man? Um, oh, I get it. Wonder Woman. All right. Okay. She wins. Okay. But I'm going to give an illustration about the Man of Steel. Anybody see the movie Man of Steel? I love that movie, Man of Steel. And one of my favorite parts in the whole movie is when he's in the bar. Remember when he's in the bar and he encounters that really mean guy and everything? And the guy picks up the water and he throws it in, in Superman's face that just hits him. And when you see the movie the first time, you're thinking, oh, what's going to happen? You know, he's going to take his heat vision and just burn the guy into a crisp or something like that. And, and he just takes it and he looks up and then he walks out. 
Then the scene goes back into the bar until the point where the man... How many of you have not seen the movie? Not seen the movie. Not seen, okay, I'm going to tell you what happens. Spoiler alert. So, so here, here's what happens is the man who threw the water in Superman's face is now walking out of the bar. And you know what he sees? He sees his 18-wheeler tractor trailer up in the air, you know, stuck on top of, of something else because Superman has picked it up and done it. So it looks like... He was not going to retaliate, but boy, did he retaliate. You see what I'm saying? So I love the movie. I thought, what a great example of how a Christian should respond. Just walk away. You know, don't beat up the guy, but just walk away. And instead, what did Superman do? He ruined the guy's 18 wheeler. So Superman is not our example. Jesus is. (laughs) And whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him, the other also. There are people who have misunderstood this verse to mean that it's teaching pacifism, that uh, nations should not have a government uh, that has um, a military and that they should not protect themselves or defend themselves. That's ridiculous. Jesus is not talking about governments. He even says in Romans 13 that it is the government that has the right of the sword. In other words, government has the, the God-given right to exert violence against those who are trying to attack the members of a given country. This, though, however, is not teaching about Christian pacifism in the political realm. It's teaching about how we as Christians should not retaliate against other people. So we have to be careful. Um, That's the first example. Whatever it means for Jesus to say, do not resist him who is evil, he's saying don't retaliate. But then, in a sense, he's giving these illustrations where people are able to do something to us. But notice, they're all limited examples. A slap against the cheek in the time of Christ's uh, time was an insult. It wasn't, um, he doesn't say, hit you so that you draw blood. He says, slap them on the cheek. Notice the limit. Um, to what Jesus is saying we need to put up with. Some people misunderstood this to mean that then Christians are just doormats and people can do anything you want to them and you just have to take it. That's not what it's saying. Look at verse 40. He gives a second illustration. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Well, this was because in the law, if somebody sued you because you did something bad against them, they were able to sue you for your shirt But they were not able to sue you for your coat. So what's the principle that that comes from here? It's that we don't insist upon our legal rights. This was an issue in 1 Corinthians 6. There were two Christians where one had done something against the other and they were going to take the matter to the court of law. And Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians 6, can't, can't you judge it? Can't you figure it out? Can't you guys settle, settle it? And instead, you're going to take this to court in front of unbelievers. And then he says this verse. He says, why not rather be wronged? That's what Jesus is talking about here. It's a spirit that says, why not rather be wronged by someone else? And so in this instance where someone is suing you, then he's saying, don't insist on your legal rights. But instead, um, even give back more than what you owe when you've wronged someone else. 
There's a principle in the Bible of restitution. And in verse 40, what we see is, is that a Christian was sued by someone else, which usually didn't happen unless the Christian had done something. So when Jesus says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. He's saying, give back to other people an appropriate restitution. In fact, go above even what the law requires of you in that instance when you've sinned against someone. Make it right. That's his principle. And then verse 41, he gives another illustration. And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Well, here, um, what we're seeing is, is that there's a principle where God wants us to gladly serve others, even when they're being unreasonable. For somebody to ask you to walk along um, the mile with you, uh, usually carrying something for them, and ask you to walk one mile, Jesus is saying, go two instead. Don't you see what's happening in this passage? There's a lot behind the scenes. But one of the things it's telling you if you're a Christian is, is that number one, no one chooses your response to evil but you. In other words, when someone does something evil against you, that doesn't of necessity bring out evil in you. You have a choice. But the second thing that it's saying is, is allow somebody's sins against you to be an opportunity to love them the way Jesus loves us. So when Jesus says, let them have your coat and go with them the extra mile, he's moving you from from clinging to your personal rights and your legal rights or retaliating against someone else to thinking about how to love a person who's sinning against you. When I lived in Indonesia, in one of the jobs that I had, I had an unreasonable administrator who was asking me to do two people's jobs. I was okay with that until he asked me to do a third person's job on on top of that. And then I got rather irritated on the inside and I was tempted not to do it. So I thought, well, I just want to storm into his office and say, dude, who do you think you are? I'm working two people's jobs already and you give me this third job? That's what I wanted to say. But you know what I did? I did what he asked. And what he asked me to do was to write English, two English textbooks. While I was teaching a full-time load, conducting the, the university orchestra, and preparing um, to, to uh, be the person responsible for the music for the largest wedding that ever happened in Jakarta. So while I was doing uh, all that, he asks me to write two English textbooks. I was not hired in my job description to do English. I hate teaching English. I love teaching Chinese, um, but I hate teaching English. And he asks me to write two English textbooks um, in the context of everything else I was doing. So what did I do? I stayed up late and I did it. And then I gave it to him by the deadline that he asked. As an example, the principle of trying to gladly serve others even when they are unreasonable. Now look at verse 42. He has another illustration. So we've seen somebody slaps you on your right cheek, turn to them the other, don't retaliate. We've seen if anyone wants to sue you um, and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. So we don't insist upon our legal rights, but instead we give back more than what we owe when we've wronged someone else. And then we've seen that We should go the next mile, the second mile, with somebody who's forcing us to go the first one because we should gladly serve others even when they're unreasonable. But notice verse 42. He gives 
One more illustration in verse 42. He says, give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Living in China, and I lived in China um, off and on uh, for four years, full time in Suzhou for, for one year, off and on for three years, flying back and commuting back between Taipei and the South China city of Shenzhen. Well, Shenzhen is like migrants central. It's like beggar central. I mentioned in the past that I even taught the beggars. I had beggars class to teach them how to be better beggars in Shenzhen because there were so many beggars and I wanted them to be able to be cared for. But in this passage, it reminds me about how every day in China, I'd walk past people and they'd ask me for something. Now, the Bible says, give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Does that mean that in every instance, when a street person asks you for a dollar, you should give them a dollar? Is that what Jesus is saying? Well, Jesus didn't have people on crack cocaine um, back then. Back then. Um, and the principle that he's giving us, the reason why I mentioned that about crack cocaine is, is I found living in Philadelphia that if I gave a homeless person money, they were using it to go then buy drugs. So I came up with a strategy in Philadelphia that I applied in Shenzhen that I would never give people money. But I felt bad if somebody asks me for something and I didn't give them something, especially if I was going to eat dinner. So what I did was, is I would either um, give them a coupon from a local restaurant to, to go get something to eat, or I would actually take them to go eat with me and I'd buy them a meal or I'd bring them a meal when I was done eating and, I, and I'd bring it to them. But Jesus is telling us that what we need to do is use our money and everything we have is an opportunity to bless and to love other people. I find that there's only two kinds of people in this world. There are those who love money and use people and there are those who love people and use money. Now, which one of those are you? Are you a person who loves money and uses people? Are you a person who loves people and uses money in order to love them and to bless others? Jesus is saying that all that you have in the financial realm needs to be used for someone else. Do you see how this entire passage is pointing us away from our own sinful reactions to embrace holy reactions that then allow us to love the people who are even sinning against us, which is why in the next verses, which I've already preached on in an earlier message, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love even your enemies. What we have in the Sermon on the Mount up to this point is a progression of moving from a controlled spirit in the Beatitudes to moving into a situation of controlling your own actions and reactions that you might be in a position to be like Jesus himself. What kind of a person are you today? Are you a person who lives and loves like Jesus? Jesus is calling us to be the very person that he was. The person who 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and, be, and following describes as being the one who, while being reviled, did not revile in return, but kept on entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And we are supposed to be like Jesus. 
the one who bore our sins on his own body on the tree so that we ourselves might be dead to sin and alive to God and no longer live to sin as the controlling part of our life. Let me ask you, what would it look like in your life if you really took this passage and did it, lived it out? What would it look like when you and your spouse are arguing and your wife says something? Then do you, do you strike back when she says something against you? Or wives, do you strike back when your husband shouts at you? What about if at school, when somebody goes to hit you, instead of hitting them back, you'd run away and instead pray for them and get the appropriate teacher authority in there? What if people saw that kind of an attitude in our lives? They'd begin to see Jesus. So this is a passage that God brings to us to challenge us to be like the one who loved us. What did Jesus do when people were hitting him? He allowed them to do it so that he might be the one who could pay for our sins. And for that reason, he allowed it to happen. We live in a world of sinful people. We live in a world where people will sin against us. But the question is, will we allow the sins of others to be an opportunity to love them like Christ, to not strike back and to not retaliate? To be like Jesus, the one who said from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So many people today know not what they're doing, and it makes life very difficult for us as believers. But what God is calling us to do is to love them, to forgive them, to not strike back in our anger with our words or even in our actions to hurt them the way they have hurt us. And so Jesus says... You have heard it said, but I say to you, love like Jesus loves. Let's pray together.